You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's bow together. Our Father, we come now to your word, and we must bow our hearts and our minds before it and understand and confess that there are things which are too great for us to fully comprehend, and yet you have revealed such wonderful truth in your word. It is impossible for us to understand the unbelief of man or even the reasons behind why some do believe, and yet your word has told us in very clear, unmistakable terms that our God is sovereign and he gives grace and he enables belief. We thank you, O Father, for the passage that is before us, and we pray that you would grant us understanding. We have the confidence that when your word is truly proclaimed, that your voice is truly heard. And we ask now that you would speak to us through this passage of Scripture, and may your word be our guide, and, O Spirit, may you be our teacher. We ask in Christ's name for the glory of God. Amen. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to take Hunter Safety Course with my two oldest kids. And uh, I enjoyed the course. It was fun to go through it again and to learn all of that stuff again and to see how much of it has changed and maybe things that have, were different than when I was a kid. And I was curious to see if some of the videos that they showed back when I took it had been changed or updated or were the same videos now when my kids took it. And I took it back in a while back, a few years back. And the videos that I saw back then had to have been made at the at the latest, the late 70s, early 80s. And I remember as a 12-year-old boy, there was one particular video, and it was a survival video, how to survive in the wilderness. There was one video that haunted me as a 12-year-old boy, haunted me. And it wasn't the whole video. It was actually just one particular scene in the video. And when I signed my kids up for hunter safety, I thought to myself, I'm going to enjoy sitting through all of this. But I'm going to be watching for that video and see if they've updated it or changed it or even if they even play it anymore. And sure, sure enough, the video was a video of how to survive in the wilderness. And it sort of chronicled or told the story of a family that got lost in the snow or got caught in the weather and an, another guy who got lost in the woods and somebody else who got lost in the desert. And then they would tell you what became of these people. And then they would go back and instruct you on what he should have done or they should have done differently, which would have resulted in their... Uh, rescue, or at least in them surviving. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you who have taken Hunter's Ed remember this video? A few. Okay. The one scene that haunted me out of the whole video, and I didn't even see it coming, and then boom, it was right there on the screen again. Now, it doesn't haunt me anymore, okay? I've, I've gotten past that. As a 12-year-old boy, I cannot tell you how many times I saw that scene in my head. Just this one particular scene. It was the only thing, ironically, out of the whole video that I remembered. I didn't remember anything else except this one scene. And this was the scene. It was the story of a man who got, who went out hunting with his buddies in the same area every year, for like eight or ten years running. He knew the, knew the lay of the land. He was familiar with everything. And while he was out hunting, he was tracking a deer and he kind of got lost and at least sort of lost his bearings. And so then he wandered around for a little bit trying to find his bearings again, trying to find something that looked familiar. And after a couple of hours of doing this, the man began to panic. And he was overcome by an absolute irrational panicking fear. 
overcome by fear. So he started to move faster and faster. Pretty soon he was running through the woods and wading through the snow. He began, he dropped his hunting rifle, began to shed his articles of clothing. And before long, he was, he was totally overcome by this irrational fear. And the scene that haunted me was, they said, that, that, that fear, this type of irrational fear, can grip a person so much to the point where they actually will run from the very thing that would mean their rescue. And the one scene that I remember from a kid was this man cowering behind a tree, hiding from two snowmobilers who went within 30 yards of this man. He was actually hiding from the very thing that would mean his rescue. And what gripped me, and I'll tell you the end of the story just because I know you're all hanging on this, the end of the story was that he was found a day later, but he was found alive and he lost a couple fingers and a couple of toes. Not much because he, he could have, not much in light of the fact that he could have died. But what gripped me and, and haunted me as a kid was the thought that somebody could be so gripped with irrational fear as to be blinded and actually run and hide from the very thing that would mean their rescue. Now, do you see the parallels to John 6 and the unbelievers that you know? I did. I wasn't a believer when I saw that the first time, but now as a believer watching that, I thought, wow, how how much of a picture or an analogy is that to what an unbeliever does? Lost and in desperate need, needing salvation, needing forgiveness, needing deliverance because they are a slave from sin, the unbeliever actually irrationally fears and runs from the very thing that would mean their rescue and their deliverance. A lost person is like somebody asleep on a bomb, oblivious to the danger, enjoying the slumber, and then when you try and wake them and warn them and deliver them from their peril, they fight against it and attack you and hate you for it. Now both the man hiding from the snowmobiles and the the unbeliever asleep on the bomb and enjoying his slumber are good analogies or pictures of an unbeliever in our world today, but the peril of an unbeliever, somebody who rejects Christ, is even worse than either the man running from his rescue or the person sitting on the bomb. And here's why it's worse. The unbeliever loves the very thing that threatens him. He has an affection for darkness and a hatred for the light. And the unbeliever actually loves his lost condition. And you can't wake them from it. You can't coerce them out of it. You can't lure them out of it because no amount of evidence and no amount of effort on your part was able to dislodge their love for darkness and to wake them from the slumber. And when you try and do so, when you try and deliver them from peril, they'll hate you and attack you for it. It's just like the crowd that we're looking at in John chapter 6. I told you last week that the reason for unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. It is always due to a... Love for darkness. Now you're getting it, right? A love for darkness. It's never a lack of evidence. It's always a love for darkness. The problem with an unbeliever is not an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem. It's not a, it's not a matter of we have not been given enough evidence because God has given overwhelming evidence. And the problem with an unbeliever is not that they need more proof or they need their intellectual challenges answered. In some cases, in most cases, and I would say in all cases, they throw up the intellectual challenges simply as reasons for unbelief. And they throw them up and and expect you to answer them as if those are roadblocks or hurdles when in fact they know there is a God, they know they are accountable, their conscience bears witness, and they've been given plenty of evidence. The reason for unbelief is never an intellectual problem. It is always a moral problem. It's not a lack of evidence. It is a love for darkness. That is the reason for unbelief. We saw that as we went through John 5. We're seeing it again with this crowd as we're going through John chapter 6. 
They had proof. They had evidence. They saw Jesus work the miracles. They saw him. They heard his teaching. They saw him multiply bread and fish on a hillside out in the middle of a desert in a, in a wilderness and to feed a multitude. They had plenty of evidence. But the problem was not that they lacked evidence. The problem was that they loved darkness. And in spite of all of the evidence that was given to them, they would not believe. They did not want to believe. That is man's culpability and man's response before a holy God in the state of his sin. And in John chapter 6, all of it kind of comes to a head with their final, arrogant, prideful, uh, self-righteous, self-reliant demand in verse 34 when they say to him, Lord, give us this bread continually. And that's not them falling on their knees and saying, Oh, sovereign God, we know who you are. We ask that you give us that life that you are promising. They thought he was speaking of physical bread, and they've just raised the bar beyond what they had demanded before in asking Jesus, you say you're able to give bread to the multitudes or to the nations. You're able to feed all people for the life of the world. Give us this bread then. Show us. Give us another reason. Give us another miracle, another evidence, another proof. And we saw that Jesus did not concede to their demands. He did not give in to their expectations because he knew that it was not an issue of proof. He had provided enough. He had given enough evidence. The issue was that they loved darkness, and he called on them to believe. And now that brings us to verse 35 and following, which we're going to be looking at today and in the weeks to come. We're going to look at verses 35 and 36 today. And we're going to notice two things. First, in verse 35, it's really uh, verse 35 and 36 are somewhat uh, contrasting, contrasting with each other. In verse 35, Jesus gives us a statement of his unending supply. That is the unending supply of Christ. Look at verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 36 is the unbelief, again, of the crowd. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Right? I am the bread of life, and you have seen me, and yet you will not believe. In verse 35, it is the unending supply that Christ offers. And in verse 36, it is the unbelief of the crowd, unbelief of the multitude. And those two things are contrasted. And then verses 37 through 40, which we'll dive into next week, give us the reason for the unbelief and explain why it is that anybody believes at all. So let's look, first of all, at the unending supply of Christ. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now, how many of you have heard or read or studied that phrase or that claim before at some point? Okay, it's a rich one. It's one that we're all familiar with. It's very significant because here's what Jesus is doing. The crowd up to this point has been asking him for physical bread. The discussion has been about physical bread. Out in the wilderness on the day prior, he multiplied bread and fish. The issue was physical uh, hunger, physical supply, physical nourishment. And the crowd now is hungry. They have found him in Capernaum. They're wanting another free meal. So all of the discussion has been about this physical bread. The physical bread that he provided the day prior. The physical bread that God provided through Moses or in the day of Moses out in the wilderness for his people. The manna, which we've looked at in the last couple weeks. And now the conversation is turning again to this issue of physical bread. And Jesus has been telling them all the way through this. What he is describing is not physical bread, it's spiritual bread. We've seen that because we have the benefit of hindsight. But they haven't quite gotten it yet. So when they ask him in verse 34, Lord, give us more of this bread and supply it continuously. Jesus knows that they are asking him for another miracle, and he knows that they are asking him for physical bread. So that is why he says in verse 35, I am that bread. In other words, what I have been describing to you is not something outside of myself that I can create and give to you. It's me. I'm not offering you gifts. I'm offering you me. And that is what we get in the gospel, is it not? 
Several months ago, I, we handed out that little book for the suggested donation deal of three bucks, God is the Gospel. What is it that God provides for us in the Gospel? It's Himself. It's not a list of benefits. All the benefits come to us, yes, but why do all of the list of benefits come to us in the Gospel? It's because God offers us Himself. He offers us His Son. So that if you have Christ, you have everything else. But you can't have everything else without Christ. What did the crowd want? Everything else. They didn't have time for Christ. And Jesus is saying to them, what I am offering to provide to you is not things outside of myself. It is me. I am that bread of life. And if you have me, you have life. Because he is the bread of life. Now there's something significant about that phrase, and I want to camp on it for just a second. What's significant about the phrase in verse 35 is actually... Well, the bread of life is a significant phrase, but there's something else significant that doesn't immediately strike your eyes, and it is the first two words of that sentence, I am. I am. Now, if you studied the deity of Christ and the Gospel of John any time past, then you know that those two words, I am, ego I me in the Greek, those two words are a name for God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Now, you caught it from Exodus 3, right? Exodus 3, verse 14, that's where it comes from. It comes from when Moses, uh, God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses said to God, I'm going to the children of Israel, and I'm going to say to them, Our God, the God of our fathers, has sent me to you. And they're going to say, oh, yeah, what's his name? What am I going to say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Therefore you shall say to the sons of Israel that I am has sent you. And then later on in the passage, God says, That is my name. That is the name that I am giving to you by which you will know me, by which the children of Israel will know me. I am the ego, I me, the I am. Now the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. The Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used by Jesus and the apostles in their day was, was called the Septuagint. The Septuagint. It was the Greek Old Testament. In the Greek Old Testament, in Exodus 3.14, the Greek translates that ego, I me, I am. And so the Jews of Jesus' day and Jesus knew that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob went by this name, I am who I am. It was the I am who sent Moses. And by I am, God is taking basically all of his non-communicable attributes, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his eternality, his immutability, his unchangeableness, and all of those are wrapped up in that name, I am, not God is not I was or I will be, but I am. That means He's the unchanging, unchangeable God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because He existed in eternity past, He exists today, and He will exist forevermore. And no matter what age you're talking about throughout all of human history, God is there and God is the same and He is the I am. He's not different yesterday than He is today. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the I am. And there's so much wrapped up in that name, and that's how the Jews affectionately referred to God, as the ego I me, the I am. Now that name is worth a series of messages just in and of itself, but we're not going to do that. What is important for you to know in today's context, in, in this passage in John 6, is that Jesus here uses that very same divine title of himself, but he couples it with a metaphor. There are other times in John's Gospel where Jesus does not do that where he does not couple the ego I me with a metaphor. Instead, he just simply declares, ego I me, I am. I want you to turn over to John chapter 8 and look at a couple of verses real quick. John chapter 8 is a significant one, and maybe when we get to John 8, since this phrase occurs there in such striking contrast, we'll deal with that, that name of God, I, I am, in more detail. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a discussion with the Pharisees. 
And the issue is who he is and what he, again, what he offers to them and their unwillingness to believe and his offer of salvation if they would turn and if they would believe. Look at John 8, verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now probably every translation in this building has the word he, I am he, in italics or maybe capitalized or set apart in some way to indicate to us that the he is not in the original Greek. It's not in the original manuscript. The he is added to make the sentence sort of flow. But in making the sentence flow, it sort of takes away from the power of the sentence itself. Unless you believe that ego I me, you will die in your sins. In other words, unless you believe that I am God, that I am the I am, unless that is part of your theology, when you come to me, you will die in your sins. Can somebody become a believer in Jesus Christ and be saved if they reject the truth that he is God? No, you cannot unless you believe that he is the eternal God in human flesh. You cannot be saved. You will die in your sins. Jesus does it again in verse 28. Look at verse 28. Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that ego I me, and I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak the things as the Father has taught me. And there is his claim to deity, even in the context of speaking of the Father, who is also God, who has taught the Son. And then all of it comes to a head at the end of John chapter 8. Look at John chapter 8, verse 56. Jesus said to the Jews, the Pharisees, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, ego, I me, I am. And do you think the Jews understood what he was claiming? Yeah, read verse 59. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they pick up stones to throw at him? Because claiming to be God was blasphemy. And if he wasn't God, he was a blasphemer and he deserved to be stoned. That's it. They understood exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be the I Am. Now back to John chapter 6. There are times when Jesus, like in John 8, and another one in John 18, by the way, when the crowd comes to arrest Jesus and they're looking for him, he says to them there, I Am. And when he said those words, they they got a glimpse of his glory and fell backwards. John 18. In John chapter 6, we have Jesus using the divine title, Ego, I, Me, and he's coupling it with a metaphor. And John records seven such statements. They're called the I Am statements of John, where Jesus uses the divine title, and then he couples it with a metaphor which describes some element of his character, his person, or his work. And there are seven of them. There are seven miracles in John, you remember? And there are seven discourses in John. And now there are seven I am statements in John, and John chapter 6 verse 35 is one of them. And now you're saying, so you're going to ask us not only to memorize the seven signs and the seven discourses, but now we have to memorize the seven I am statements. Well, good news for you, all but one of the seven statements are in the discourses. So once you get the discourses down, you only have to remember one very popular, very recognizable I am statement, and you've got all seven of those down. This is the first of them, John 6.35, I am the bread of life. And you'll notice that Jesus restates it again in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Twice he says it. So this is the first I am statement, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8 is the second one, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10 is the third one, I am the door to the sheep. In John chapter 10 is the fourth one, I am the good shepherd. In John chapter 11 is the one that's not attached to a discourse, and that is, I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14 is the sixth one, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John chapter 15, verse 1, is the seventh one, I am the true vine. 
I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. Those are the seven I am statements of John's gospel. So what does it mean when Jesus says, I am the bread of life? How would the Jews who heard that statement understand that? Because each of these, each of the I am statements communicates implicitly some element of his deity, of his Godhead, his godness, of his divine character and his divine nature. So how would the Jews have understood if they were, if you were standing there, you were first century Jew, how would you have heard that I am the bread of life? What would that have communicated to you? In Jesus' day, the term bread, and it's used all the way through this passage because it's not just the, the, the idea of bread is not just sort of at the beginning and a couple of times through. It's actually this whole discourse is wrapped around this idea of bread. So we're going to be able to flesh this out a little bit in the weeks to come. Bread in Jesus' day was the most basic, foundational, fundamental staple of human existence. Bread was the most basic element of anybody's diet. Everybody had bread. Everybody had bread. And everybody ate bread. And if you were too poor for bread, you were too poor to live. Because bread was cheap. And bread was common. And if there was no bread in the land, then you knew you were in a serious famine. If there was no bread in the land, there was nothing in the land. If you couldn't make bread, you could not live. And if you could not buy bread, you could not live. Bread was the most, it was as basic to life and to living and nourishment as air and water. That's how the Jews viewed it. It was common. It was universally um, eaten by everybody. It was eaten by those who were the poorest of the poor, and it was eaten by the wealthiest of the wealthy. Every class of society, upper class, middle class, lower class, beggar class, every class of society ate bread. And every class of society loved bread and enjoyed bread. And they ate it daily, and it was their constant nourishment and their constant sustenance. Bread was the most basic staple of life. It was the universal food of life. In other words, everybody from the top of society to the bottom of society ate bread. And bread was the most universally, um, the, it was universally available to all people. In other words, everybody had access to it. And it was also the universal diet of all people in all nations. Everybody had access to bread. In first century, in the ancient world, Bread was it. You didn't have bread, you didn't have anything. So it was basic. It was eaten by everybody from the top of the social ladder to the bottom of the social ladder, and it was available to all people in all nations. Now you can see how wonderful of an analogy that is of Jesus Christ. Can you not? It is, he is, the most basic provision for our most basic need. That's what bread is. What is our most fundamental basic need? Life. Forgiveness. Jesus is that provision for the most basic and fundamental need. He's also the provision for everybody, whether you're at the highest class of society or the lowest class of society, is it not? It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female, doesn't matter. If you need life, he is the one who gives it to you. He's also universally available to all people in all nations. The gospel is to be preached to the ends of the earth, and the offer of the gospel is to be given to all people, everybody, so that all may come, and any and everyone who comes from any nation, from anywhere in the world, anybody who comes to Christ will find that he will not cast them out. He will provide for them the bread of life and eternal life. It's a perfect analogy for who Jesus is. That he is the bread of life and he is the most basic sustenance and he is the most available sustenance to all people. It's not just bread for a certain class. It's not just bread for a certain nation. It's bread for all classes and for all peoples. And any who come will find that he will satisfy their deepest longings and their deepest needs. But the crowd did not come. In fact, they remained in unbelief. 
Psalm chapter 42, verse 1 describes the hunger that we have for God. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And there that desire, that longing for God is is uh, described in terms of hunger and thirst. So the Jews would universally recognize bread is our most basic sustenance for our most basic need. And when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, they would have understood exactly what he meant. We have a universal need. We have a most basic and fundamental need. And he is saying that he is able to meet that need for eternal life. Now look at verse 35 again. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Now does that mean that once you are a believer you no longer have any longings or unmet desires. Is that what that means? You shake your head because you say, well, that can't be it because I've been a believer and I have all kinds of longings and unmet desires. And if that's what that meant, then I would never hunger or thirst after anything. So we know from human experience that it's not true that once I have become a believer that all of a sudden every hunger and thirst I have is satisfied and I never experience it again. Didn't even the most mature and most godly of the apostles and the greatest of the apostles say, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Didn't Paul want to go to be with Christ, which is far better, to leave this world and go to be with Him? Didn't Paul want to know Christ more and the power of His resurrection and be conformed to His image? All those desires are legitimate. And as Christians, we have those desires. And it's right. To say as a Christian, I want more holiness. I want to be rid of my sin. I desire and long for fellowship with God's people and for the teaching of God's Word, and I hunger to be fed, and I thirst after righteousness. All of those thirsts and longings and hungers I have. So how is it that Jesus can promise, once you have come to Me, you will never hunger and you will never thirst? When in reality, having come to Him, I do hunger and I do thirst after all of these things. How do we, how do we reconcile those two things? What is Jesus speaking of in John chapter 6? Is he speaking of the longing for holiness and fellowship and teaching of the Word? Or is he speaking of eternal life? He's speaking of eternal life. And that's what he is saying we will never hunger and thirst for again. And twice he says, and it's actually double negative in the Greek, if you were to read it literally, it would say, he who comes to me will never, never hunger. He who believes in me will never, never thirst. So what need, what hungering and thirsting is Jesus describing? For fellowship and the teaching of the Word and growth and holiness or eternal life? It's eternal life that He is describing. And that is what He is saying we will never, never hunger or thirst after again. In other words, when you come to Christ for salvation, you are given eternal life. And here is Jesus' promise. Having been given eternal life, you will never never hunger or thirst for eternal life again. Never. You will never hunger or thirst. You will never be in a condition ever again in your life where you say, oh, if I only had eternal life. You might at some point say, oh, if I were only holier. Or if I were only more righteous. Or if I only had more of Christ. You'll have that your whole life. It's called progressive sanctification. But never in your life will you ever say, oh, if I could only have life. Because He is the never-ending sufficient supply of life. 
Now, does this touch on the issue of whether somebody can lose their salvation or not? Certainly does, doesn't it? There are some who say that once you get saved, you can be saved. And then there will come a point where you sin or where God gets tired of you or where you fail to live up to whatever standard or expectations men put on you. And uh, you will come to a point where you've lost your salvation. You'll hunger and thirst for salvation again. You'll hunger and thirst for eternal life. Not according to Jesus. Once you come to me for eternal life, I will give you eternal life and you will never, never hunger. You will never, never thirst. He repeats it. His eternal life is eternal. Otherwise, it would be called temporary life. Does that make sense? All the way through this passage, we are going to deal with the issue of eternal security from almost every conceivable angle. Every conceivable angle, because it is all the way through here. Why is it that I am eternally secure? How is it that Jesus can promise me, once you come to me for life, you will never hunger and thirst again? How is it that he can make such a promise? Because of verse 37 to 40, all that the Father gives him will come to him. And all who come to him, he will not cast any of them out. And this is the will of the Father, that of all that the Father has given to him, he will lose none of them. And having come to him, he's not going to lose me. He will never lose me because I've come to him for life. And his promise is, you will never hunger and you will never thirst for life again. You'll hunger and thirst for a lot of things, but never eternal life. I've come to Christ. I believed upon him. And I can tell you this, from the day that I got saved until now, I have never once hungered or thirsted after eternal life. I've hungered and thirsted after a lot of things, a lot of desires, a lot of unmet expectations, a lot of desires for sanctification and righteousness and holiness, but I have never wanted life again. How can I never want life again? I have it, and I have it in abundant measure, and I will never lose it. That's his promise. Now you notice the difference, or you'll notice there in that phrase, verse 35, that Jesus gives two parallel phrases. You, He who comes to me will never, never hunger, He who believes on me will never, never thirst. Now I ask you this question, those two parallel phrases, is there a difference between coming to Christ and believing on him? Okay, look at verse 35 again. He who comes to me will never, never hunger, and he who believes in me will never, never thirst. Two parallel phrases, the hungering and thirsting, are obviously speaking of spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst. And Christ's unending sufficiency to satisfy our longing for eternal life, for hungering and thirsting. So now is the coming and is the believing something different? In other words, is it possible for someone to come to Christ and never believe on Him? Or is it possible for someone to believe on Christ having never come to Him? And you say, Jim, that seems like an inane question. An immature, useless question for our consideration. And it's not at all. We have to answer this before we get through John chapter 6. And you'll see why in the weeks ahead. You have, we might as well start answering it today. Is it possible for somebody to believe on Christ having never come to Him? Or is it possible for somebody to come to Him without actually believing on Him? Because there will be people who will seek to get out from underneath of the very uncomfortable teaching of verses 37 through 45 by saying it is possible for a whole group of people who have been given by the Father to the Son, for that whole group of people to actually come to Christ because all of them are drawn by the Father, and yet only a few of them will actually believe. So in order to avoid the teaching of John 6, some will say there is a difference, and it's a radical difference between believing and coming. Somebody can come to Christ 
Whole groups can come to Christ, actually step up there, and yet remain unbelieving, turn away and walk away without eternal life and be lost forevermore. Is there a difference between believing and coming to Christ? Or are they used synonymously? Let me give you three observations, and this should be enough to answer the question. Three observations. First, the coming and believing are used in verse 35 in two parallel phrases. The hungering and thirsting are obviously synonymous for the unmet unmet desire or longing for eternal life and forgiveness. The believing and the coming of verse 35 are used for all intents and purposes in this entire passage synonymously. Second, both coming and believing have the exact same result. And notice this, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. What happens to those who come to the Father and Jesus does not reject them? Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that is the Father, that of all that he has given me, up in verse 37, the ones who are given come to him, all of them, of all whom he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. You notice the reference at the end of verse 39 to raising it up on the last day? It's repeated in verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. So who is it that's raised up on the last day in verse 39? It's all those who come to the Son. Who is it that's raised up on the last day in verse 40? It's all those who believe on the Son. To come to the Son and to believe on the Son have the exact same results. Those who come get eternal life. Those who believe get eternal life. Look down at verse 50, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So the one who comes to the Son is given eternal life. The one who believes on the Son is given eternal life. The one who comes is not cast out, but is raised up on the last day. And the one who believes is not cast out. He is raised up on the last day. That is his promise. So is coming and believing two separate things, or are they the same thing? They're the same thing. Further, we would note, and this is the third point, that those who come, this is two different ways of describing the same group of people. Those who come to the Son are those who believe, and those who believe are those who come. They are synonymous. They Both those terms describe the same group of people. So listen carefully to this. There is no third group of people named in John 6. Nowhere in the entire passage does Jesus describe a group of people who come to the Son and yet remain unbelieving. Did you catch that? Nowhere in this entire chapter does Jesus describe a group of people who come to the Son and yet remain unbelieving. Nowhere. It's nowhere in there. All who come, believe. All who believe have come to the Son. Those who believe and those who come get the same benefits. The same thing happens to them because the one who comes never hungers. The one who believes never thirsts. Whether they hunger or whether they thirst, whether they come or whether they believe, their expectations and their desires and their hungering and their thirsting is met. There is no mysterious third group of people who are drawn by the Father and come to the Son and yet remain in unbelief and are lost. All who believe come to the Son and all who come to the Son in John 6 will believe. All of them. There is no group of people who come to the Son in the sense that John 6 is describing, who come to the Son and yet remain in unbelief. You have to get that nailed down in your head. As we go through this, don't be imagining some group of people that doesn't exist who have actually come to Christ and yet remained 
in unbelief. There is no such group of people. Coming and believing are the exact same thing, two different words used synonymously to describe this group of people who are raised up on the last day. Now look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 35 describes the unending supply of Christ. Verse 36 describes the unbelief of the crowd. And yet I have said to you, you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Now lest you were reading verse 34 when the crowd said, Lord, give us this bread always. And you thought to yourself, this is a bunch of humble, penitent people who are coming and falling down before Jesus and asking for eternal life. Look how Jesus describes these people in verse 36. They do not believe. They had seen his signs, and yet they do not believe. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said, I have said to you that you've seen me and not believed? When did he say this? When did he say to this crowd that they had seen him and not believed? Some people would suggest that that refers to something Jesus said on a prior occasion that's not recorded in John 6 or anywhere else in John's gospel. In other words, what Jesus was saying is, on every occasion and every place when I have the opportunity, I'm telling you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. And he's condemning them for their unbelief. I would fall into the camp that would say that Jesus in verse 36 is describing the same thing he said in verse 26. In verse 26, he said to them, you seek me. I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. What was he saying in verse 26? You saw what I did, and you've come to me not because you saw with your spiritual eyes what I did and have now embraced me for who I am, but because you want to be filled. In other words, verse 26, you're still unbelieving because you have not perceived the meaning of the miracle. You did not understand the miracle. And since you did not understand the miracle, you are not coming to me and believing on me for the right reasons. You want a physical meal. In verse 36, Jesus says the same thing to them. Basically, I've said to you, you've seen me. You saw what I did, and yet you do not believe. This is Jesus' way of saying that unbelief is never due to a lack of evidence. It's always due to a love for darkness. It's exactly what he's saying in verse 36. You saw me. You saw the miracle. You saw me healed. You saw me raise up the sick. You've seen me cast out demons. You saw me multiply bread and fish. You saw all of that with your physical eyes, and yet you do not believe. You do not believe. The whole idea of seeing is something, and this theme is key, all the way through John 6. I want you to compare verse 36 with verse 40. Look at verse 36. You have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Now look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You see the two different references to seeing? Verse 36 is seeing. You've seen me, yet you do not believe. Verse 40 is seeing. It's beholding the Son, and yet believing, and receiving eternal life, and being raised up on the last day. So there's two different types of seeing mentioned in the passage, and Jesus is playing these off of one another. There's a group in verse 36 that saw with their physical eyes, but did not see with their spiritual eyes, and they remained in unbelief. There is a group in verse 40 who does not see with their physical eyes, sees instead with their spiritual eyes, and believes and is raised up on the last day. Verse 36 is people who saw him physically. Verse 40 describes us. We have not seen him physically, have we? We've never seen Christ in our presence performing miracles, and yet we have, in the words of verse 40, beheld the Son and believed upon him and received eternal life, and we will be raised up on the last day. Two different groups. Those who see him physically, but not spiritually, and remain in unbelief. Those who do not see him physically, but see him spiritually, and believe, and are saved. Now I ask you this question. What is the difference, and what makes the difference? What makes those two groups to differ from one another? 
It's not amazing to me that people today don't believe. If people could stand in the presence of Christ and see Him do miracles and witness all of those divine acts and yet remain in unbelief, it does, you and I should not marvel that people don't believe today. You know what amazes me? That anybody believes. That any of us believe. What amazes me is that any of us have beheld the Son and believed in Him and received eternal life. We've never seen the miracles that these people saw. What is it that makes these two groups to differ? What is it that accounts, what is it that explains why it is that some who have never seen Him physically will behold the Son of God with spiritual eyes and believe upon Him, while others who have seen Him with their physical eyes do not see Him with their spiritual eyes and remain in unbelief? What makes one group to differ from the other? If you're thinking in your head, verses 37 to 40, you got the right answer. It's what's contained in verses 37 to 40. That's what makes one group to differ from another. There is a group who has been given by the Father to the Son as a gift. And all of them come to Him. That's what Jesus says. That's why some behold Him spiritually and believe. And that's why not all remain in unbelief like those in verse 36. Now, who's responsible for the crowd's unbelief? The crowd or God? The crowd or Jesus? Now, they've already tried to blame Jesus for their unbelief, right? Do another miracle so that we will believe? That doesn't cut the mustard at all. It's not Jesus who's responsible for their unbelief. It's not a lack of evidence. That's not the issue. That's what Jesus has said. You've seen me. You have enough proof. You have enough evidence. You've seen all that you need to see to make a decision, yet you remain in unbelief. So who's responsible for the crowd's unbelief? Is Jesus responsible for the crowd's unbelief because he would not do another miracle? No. Is God responsible for the crowd's unbelief because He did not give them to the Son? No. Who's responsible for their unbelief? We saw it all the way through chapter 3. We saw it in chapter 4. We saw it in chapter 5. We're seeing it now again in chapter 6. It is the unbeliever who is responsible for his unbelief because he loves darkness rather than light. He will not come to the light. He hates the truth. He is in rebellion against God. It is the unbeliever who bears sole responsibility for their unbelief. Now the question, if the unbeliever bears sole responsibility for their unbelief, then can the believer take sole credit for his belief? And the answer to that question is in verses 37 to 40. No, you can't. If you remain unbelieving, that's you. It's all you. That's your responsibility. And you will bear the wrath of God for eternity for your unbelief, because the problem is not a lack of evidence. It is your love for darkness. It's not an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem. It is a problem of the heart, and you cannot blame God for your wicked, rebellious, sinful, lost, blind, self-righteous heart. That is all yours to bear. If you believe, you cannot take one ounce of glory for it, because it's not yours. The glory doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and their work of redemption, which is described in verses 37 to 40. And we'll get to that next week, verse 37. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for Your immense grace to us in Christ, that You have loved us before time began, that You have graced us before time began. We thank You that You have so seen fit to give us to Your Son and then send Your Son to redeem us from our lost condition. We do ask, O oh God, that if there are unbelievers who are here, that you would draw them to yourself. We know that they cannot come unless you draw them. 
They are lost in rebellion and wickedness and in moral rebellion against you. We pray, O God, that you would soften their heart and the only hope for eternal life for those who are in a lost state and unbelieving is your grace, solely and only your sovereign grace. Draw our hearts together. Draw unbelievers to yourself that you might be glorified in your Son for time and for eternity, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.